All right, we are in Romans chapter 12. I know you don't need to groan that we're finally leaving chapters 9 through 11. I know you want to stay there, but we have to move on. Moving to this rich section here in Romans chapter 12. We do turn a corner here, as I have been saying, in chapters 12 through 16. These last five chapters here now turn to more practical instruction for us. The doctrinal instruction has come to a conclusion. Now we take all of the lessons that we have learned from the doctrinal sections and we start to apply them to in this section, in this practical section of Scripture. And if you think, well, okay, finally the hard stuff is over, you know, wrestling through words like supersessionism and eschatology and other doctrines, and we now finally get to the easy stuff, well, it's not so easy here as we move through these final chapters because now Paul gets personal. Where the first 11 chapters, Paul speaks in doctrine referencing our thinking and shaping our, what's in our hearts. Now he gets to our lives. It gets very personal in how we are to operate. We are going to learn, even before we get out of chapter 12 of Romans, how to worship God how to use our spiritual gifts, and how to walk in genuine godly love. And that's just chapter 12. Then you move into chapter 13, and we're going to see the glories of honoring authorities. And then you get into chapter 14 and 15, and it's the exercising of our Christian liberties and through dealing with the weaker brother and how to love one another in those gray areas of life. Those challenges alone will stretch us and press us as we think through these next few chapters before us. So all of that to say is now Paul gets very personal to show us what genuine godliness looks like. That is, after we have embraced the gospel of God and we have entrusted ourselves to the message of God by faith, what effect would that have in our life? And Romans 12 through 16 describes it. Describes a life of true worship, a life of godly service, a life of genuine love without hypocrisy, a life of honor, a life of, of caring for others and godliness. And so we look forward to the fruits that God will produce in us in these, in these concluding chapters. Now our dear brother, Matthew Phillips, used to make a statement regularly in our ministry that I thought was profound and helpful for us to think about, to kind of set our thoughts in regards to this section. When our church was starting and the ministry was operating in those early years as a church plant, uh, we would regularly meet together, and it was a demanding time. As a church is small and forming together, everyone's wearing many different hats, doing a lot of different things, and one of the questions that our dear brother used to ask everybody is this, are you bacon or are you eggs? And I used to think, I love breakfast, so I'm in for all of that, but I'm not exactly sure what you were asking here. And one particular day I asked him, I said, well, what do you mean by that statement? Are you bacon or are you eggs? And he says, are you like a chicken who gives out of yourself, you give eggs, it really doesn't cost you anything, or are you like the pig giving yourself entirely, laying down your flesh, your bacon? Okay, now I get it. 
Yes, do you give from yourself in your worship or do you give yourself entirely in your worship? And that's a profoundly rich question. In regards to that, it certainly was helpful as a church plant and we were getting established to remind ourselves we're all in, investing ourselves entirely into this work uh, and, and expending ourselves for the ministry of the gospel because of what we anticipate, the riches of God's grace on display. But it is that very principle of worship that our text before us, Romans chapter 12, draws our attention to, Romans 12, verse 1. God here calls us to a kind of worship that brings him glory. A kind of worship that draws our attention to give of ourselves entirely to God, to give ourselves over entirely to His work. Not giving ourselves when things are going our way, not giving of ourselves when God's purposes align with our purposes, not seeking to give of ourselves when, uh, as a kind of spiritual payment plan, all right, I'll just give you in pieces, God, until I give it, have given enough over time. Not a kind of half-hearted devotion to God, nor a partial sacrifice to God. Not even a kind of temporary sacrifice that I can take back at any season that I want, but rather an entire giving oneself over to God in worship. Notice what Paul says, Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As one preacher said in regards to summarizing the principle in Romans 12.1, he says this, The key to spiritual victory is not getting all you can get, but giving all that you have. Or as another pastor summarizing this, in section, this section states it like this, This is where we learn to offer all our lives as worship. And this passage is demanding of us a kind of worship the flesh cannot produce. The section is reminding us of what the gospel produces that is genuine worship, genuine devotion to God. In fact, I would think that the principles laid out here in devotion to God and dedication to God is at the heart of many debates in the Christian life. The debate between, again, sovereignty and free will it comes down to your view of worship. Your, the debate of the Lordship of Christ comes down to your understanding of worship. What does the gospel call us into when we respond to the gospel of God's grace? When God calls us to worship, what does that worship look like? And ministries, of course, are divided over this. 
whole ministries dividing over these very things, saying either you're too narrow or you're too liberal. Dividing lines happen over this very topic right here. What is acceptable worship to God? What does that look like? And I do understand this, that God created man to be a worshiper. We were created to be in fellowship with God. Genesis chapter 1 describes that as God created man and then instructed man, sending him out into the world. God created man to regularly interact with man. Genesis 3, when the fall happened and God came down to commune with man, man was hiding, sin separated man from God. So man naturally worships. Man naturally turns to worship things. It's in his very makeup. It's in his very nature. I really don't need to prove this too much, but just look at sports. Just look at people going to sporting events, dressing up and interacting, and before you know it, they are worshiping their team. It is in the heart of man to be worshipful. It's his very nature. But the problem with man in that very attitude is that he also forms worship according to his own design. Turn back to chapter 10. We saw this in Romans chapter 10. In the hearts of the Jews, they were called to be righteous. They were called to be set apart for God. They were called to seek the, to be a holy nation for God. And they took that, that calling very seriously. But the problem is they decided they could do something better. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 3 says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Look, they had the right attitudes, the right desires, they wanted righteous things, but they took the righteousness of God and made their own. They sought to define worship the way they wanted it. This is in the heart of man. Man doesn't mind the practice of worship. Man struggles with the prescription of worship that God has given he turns it on its head. He twists it around. He shapes it into his own desires. They loved serving God the way they wanted to serve him. And we struggle this within our own hearts to come under what the scriptures say in regards to what genuine service would look like. So this section then, here in Romans chapter 12, comes with a kind of warning for us. The practice, again, of, God, of worship here that God has called us to engage in is demanding. And it is only possible to obtain by those who have embraced the gospel of God. It is demanding because of, of what it is calling us to, and the heart of man will not naturally give himself over to this because it is... Too much for him, as we will see as we work our way through this text. Now, let's just begin to set up our text. It starts with that word there in verse 1, therefore. 
In light of all that Paul has just said, I think really two key statements we can draw our attention to, the, to the therefore that sets up. At the end of Paul's argument, we can look at verse 32 and verse 36 of chapter 11. We kind of see the summarizing arguments. Verse 32 for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. The kind of summary purpose of the gospel is to lead all people, Jew and Gentile, to the place of realization they are in need of mercy. The gospel pushes all of us to a point where we all recognize this very truth. We are here by the mercies of God. It's the first profound truth. The second to which Paul's builds off is on verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Everything that God is doing, everything that God is directing us towards is to the riches of his glory so that he is at the center of everything. He's the center of our worship. He is the center of our devotion and our dedication. He is at the center of our delight. He is at the center of our focus so that he receives all glory and all honor. And whenever we're tempted to lift ourselves up, whenever we're tempted to be proud, whenever we're, we're tempted to exalt ourselves or to think greatly of ourselves, we're reminded of verse 32, we are here by the mercy of God. We're here by his marvelous grace. So this profound truth, then, that the gospel has called us to, to worship God and give him glory forever and the gospel is the continual reminder that we are here by mercy is brought to us because we have embraced the message of God back in again chapter 10 we saw this in chapter 10 starting in verse 14 when that that reminder that Paul gave about the spreading of the gospel when he said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? God sends out ministers to preach the message. That message is heard. We believe and we call out upon God. It is in light of that glorious gospel work of God sending out those messengers to proclaim the riches of the gospel, that, that message which we heard and had its work in our hearts, to which we believed and called out to God, that is the basis for everything that Paul is going to say from 12.1 and following. The marvelous work of God's grace to bring salvation to us. To bring mercy is the foundation for everything that comes next. So that when we come to then calling somebody to strive after the glory of God, it is because of these the rich truths that we've been hearing from chapters 116 all the way through chapter 11 and verse 36. The riches of these truths build us up. So therefore, in light of all these things, in light of all these truths you've heard, in light of the gospel brought to you, a lot of its work in your life, a lot of, in light of the foundation of what uh, has been proclaimed from the Old Testament prophets until now, in light of all those truths, in light of your reception of mercy, and in light of the riches of God's glory, therefore, 
And this heads us into this section. And what we see in this verse, and we're only going to get to verse 1, so verse 1 and 2 go together, we're going to look at the first two points in verse 1. What we see here are two marks of the gospel in the lives of God's people. First, we're a, one who has embraced the gospel, their life is marked by total surrender. And secondly, one who has embraced the gospel of God, their life is marked by a humble thought life. Total surrender and a humble thought life. And we will walk through this verse and show you these two truths this morning. So the first one, life that has embraced the gospel of God is marked by a total surrender. Again, notice the start of verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Total surrender. Lord, there I urge you, that word urge is the main verb that is carrying the force through the rest of these two verses. I presently, continually urge you. I implore you is the literal idea here. I beseech you. It is a, it is a exhortation that Paul is giving, speaking about his pleading with his audience to listen carefully to what he is saying. Listen to me. Kind of has the intensity of a father who is thinking about his children, anticipating what is about to come, and he wants to put on their minds, you need to think carefully about this. Danger is right around the corner. Maybe if we can headline hunt for a moment. Imagine you are an Israeli parent and you understood the dangers around you. Say to your kids at this moment, listen to me. I urge you. This is how you need to operate right now because of the dangers that are happening around us. This is the force that Paul is giving here in Romans 12.1. I urge you, I beseech you. He uses the same word in verse 8, speaking about a spiritual gift to be able to exhort. He who exhorts has the idea of being able to press clearly upon somebody an idea. Chapter 15 and verse 30, this word comes out again as Paul uses it. says there in 1530, I urge you or beseech you. It's used also in chapter 16 and verse 17 again. He uses this intense call to listen carefully to what I'm about to say to you. The word is parakaleo, saying, come alongside of me and listen carefully to what I'm engaging, what I'm going to teach you. What I'm going to share with you could be described even as a legal summons. This is a weightiness to what I'm saying so that you recognize the importance of these words. I urge you that they are very important. I strongly exhort you. I strongly exhort you and then just consider the significance by which he's making this this exhortation. I strongly exhort you in light of the gospel truths that you have been hearing from Romans 1.16 and following. In light of the purposes of God to bring God all glory, I exhort you. In light of the mercy that you received from God, I urge you. 
In light of the grace of God given to you when you are unworthy, Romans chapter 5 and verse 21. In light of the Spirit of God dwelling in your midst and helping you overcome, Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. Or in light of your present slavery to righteousness, Romans chapter 6 and verse 19. Or in light of your being justified by the grace of God, Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. Or in light of the personal sacrifice of Christ who laid down his life for you, Romans chapter 5, 8 through 11. Or in light of the Old Testament witness through Abraham, Romans chapter 4, and through David. In light of the satisfaction of our debt by the shed blood of Christ, Romans chapter 3. Or in light of the kindness and the patience of God to give us mercy, Romans chapter 2. Or in light of the power of God to save when we were naturally opposed to him and were suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans chapter 1. In light of all of those truths, listen to what I am about to say to you, brethren. That is the force of the therefore, I urge you. In light of all of these glorious works that God has done, listen carefully to this. Say, Pastor, why? We, we heard all those truths. Why did you set it up like that? Because what you're going to see here is the demand of total surrender comes because of the marvelous grace and mercy that God has lavished us with. And it's important for us to see that. Because in some sense, our attitude towards worship and our willingness to give ourselves in total surrender to worship is cheapened because of our low view of God's marvelous grace given to us. In light of all these marvelous truths and in light of his rich mercy that he has lavished upon us, in light of the marvelous sacrifice that he has made on our behalf, there's a command, an exhortation to total surrender. Because on that phrase, brethren, by the mercies of God. Because of his mercies, it could be the force of because of his mercies. Or it could be the force of through his mercies. If we said because, we would be looking back to what he stated in chapter 11, verses 30 through 32, and recognizing the mercy of God brought to us at the gospel. In light of that mercy, do this. But I think Paul actually changes here the focus because he uses a different word. Literally, he uses the word pities, compassions. In light of the compassion of God, a light of the sympathies of God, a light of his patience with us, do these things. So this word, wukatirmas, is the idea of his mercies. Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, God is the Father of mercies. Exact same word. Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, speaking of compassions. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 says, We are to put on a heart of compassion. It's this exact same word. We are to have sympathetic, compassionate hearts. 
It says, in light of God's compassions, in light of his mercies towards us, we are to respond in this total surrender to God. He's merciful. In light of his continuing pities towards us, his continuing compassion towards us, we are to present our bodies. See, how then is this mercy coming to me? Well, it is in that he is giving us life and that he is giving us breath. He is also giving us opportunities to worship him. Just to remind you of this truth, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us, you can just listen. It says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, notice, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. God, by his mercies, by his compassions, set before us those things we are to do that we walk in, and it brings him glory and honor. See his mercies. His continuing patience, his continuing long-suffering with us, is continuing to provide for us mercies and grace that compel us. So it is both a reminder, because we have received mercy, we're brought into this task, and by the continuing and through the continuing expression of his mercies, we press, we then fulfill this next verbal idea here. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice give ourselves, to present ourselves as this total sacrifice. So I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In light of all that God has given, in light of this grace, I strong, strongly encourage you, by the past and continuing mercies of God, who has not taken away our life, Present yourselves and your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. That's what Paul is saying here. Surrender yourself entirely over. And we come to this, this idea here in verse 1. We are now moving into Old Testament imagery. Imageries of sacrifice, imagery of offering, imagery of worship. And he describes it in this phrase as a living sacrifice. So much to be made in that idea of living. We could make too much of this. Living, as one would say, it's a living sacrifice. It means that it is a greater sacrifice because you ever tried to wrestle something living down and offer it up? It is hard. Here's what we could say at minimum in regards to the emphasis of this living sacrifice. Here's a minimum of what we can say about it. First of all, it is present. Meaning it's happening, it's right now, it's alive, it's present, it's not a future offering, it's a present offering. And a minimum, we can say it's precious, and we can, at minimum, we can say it is persistent. Continual, present, precious, persistent sacrifice. We regularly give ourselves over, our bodies over, as a living sacrifice, a precious, persistent sacrifice present sacrifice to God. It's not a promise to something in the future. It is not a something that we give in part, something that we care little about. No, it is precious to us. But it's this phrase there I want to draw your attention to. It says, your bodies. 
what does he mean that we are giving our bodies over as a sacrifice? Certainly he is not speaking in the Old Testament sense of shedding our blood. But turn back to Romans chapter 1 and notice this theme of our bodies runs through the whole book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. We'll start in verse 21. Speaking of those who have been suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, notice what he says. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So then they suppressed the truth. They gave worship over to cre- the creation rather than the creator. And then notice the response, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Notice, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. He gave them over to their corruption so that they were then corrupted in their very bodies. How we operate in our bodies is an act of worship to God. It is also how we rebel against God. It is what we do with our bodies. Turn over to Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. Paul brings this out again. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, notice, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Speaking here, our bodies given over to corruption of sin. Notice verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. We are not to use our bodies as a vehicle to carry about sin. Chapter 8, verse 10 and 11 brings it out again. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will dwell also, or will also give, notice, life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Where does the spirit dwell? He dwells in our spiritual, in our mortal bodies. He gives life to our mortal bodies. He helps bring newness of life. John verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the, notice, the deeds of the body. Body then is this vehicle in which we are acting out. And we're either giving over to sin and walking in unrighteousness or back to Romans 12 and verse 1, we are presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. It's through our bodies. It's how we act. It's how we operate. It's what we do. 
These are our offerings to God. Our total surrender is giving ourselves over to God as a holy sacrifice, a living sacrifice. We don't go on any longer giving ourselves over to the world to be controlled by the world, to live like the world, to speak like the world, to operate in the world. We give our whole hearts, our whole lives, our whole bodies over to the living God, the Spirit of God who leads us, who leads our hearts, our minds, our wills, our bodies. He leads us, directs us to His glory. We're giving ourselves, our lives over as that holy sacrifice to say, God, take my life and lead through me. Lead me to your glory. As a living and holy sacrifice, holy being spotless, being set apart, being without blemish, being perfect, being sanctified and set apart for the glory of God, we are giving ourselves then as an acceptable sacrifice. Now that's important, important for this. We are made holy because of the work of the gospel, the work of God, because of what we have believed. We're not making ourselves holy, therefore acceptable. It's what God has done in us. He has made us holy in Christ by his mercy, by his grace. So it's in response to the grace of God in our life that we're giving ourselves over. It's in response to the mercies of God given to us that we give ourselves as holy service to him. It's not something that we have stirred up in our own self-will. It is something that the gospel has produced in us that we freely give ourselves over to him. And then the last element of this section in this total surrender is this, this phrase, acceptable to God. God is the one who evaluates our sacrifice, our total surrender. He is the one. He is the one measuring the sacrifice. He is the one looking at the sacrifice. He is the one who is determining the value of the sacrifice. This is acceptable to his measure, not our own. We don't get to define what is acceptable. God is the one who defines what is acceptable. It's not popular opinion. It's not success. It is not the teachings of men. It is not our emotions, our feelings. It's not our, our uh, time or what we have. It's not measured by us. It is measured by what is acceptable to God. God determines acceptable worship. God determines acceptable devotion. He lays it out. And my joy is that fact that he has told us exactly what is acceptable in his word. We're not left guessing. What is acceptable? What is right? We, we're not left guessing. He has told us exactly in his word what is holy and acceptable sacrifice. And I appreciate that because the word of God warns us throughout the scriptures that man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. Scriptures warn us that man looks on the appearances, but God looks within and Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, when God warns through the prophet and reminds us that, says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as high as the heavens are above, 
higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You couldn't, we couldn't possibly attain to what God is looking for without his revealed word. He's told us. So we, again then, the life, the first mark of one who has embraced the gospel of God is that they are marked by a total surrender of themselves over to God. Total surrender because they are looking for one's approval and that approval is God's approval. It's acceptable to God. And they're doing this because of the mercies of God graciously given to them and they are giving themselves over in their bodies. Not just, again, their minds, not just their words, but in their entire actions. Holy and acceptable to God. Urge you, he says, to do this. I urge you to continually, and he can summarize it like this. Paul will be saying, I continually and regularly plead with you, brethren, by the past and continuing mercies of God to give your bodies regularly and continually as a living and holy sacrifice approved by God. That is the first mark of one responding to the gospel. The second is this. It is marked by humble, a humble thought life. A humble thought life. Notice the end of verse 1. Which is your spiritual service of worship. And you're saying, wait a second, how does that relate? Spiritual service of worship? How are we talking about a humble thought life here? Well, this is good theology, not necessarily good translation. The word spirit translated as spiritual service there is actually the word logicon has the idea to do of thinking. Sounds like our English word logic, but the word is thoughtful. The, learn, the word is rational. It means this is your rational response. This is your logical response is the idea here. The idea that in light of everything that has been done, this is the reasonable and logical conclusion is to give yourself over in worship like this. Certainly, spiritual service of worship is doctrinally correct. I can make that argument from Romans chapter 8. But textually, the idea is, in light of all that God has done, it is only reasonable, logical, that you would respond in this kind of worship. In light of what he has done, this is reasonable. Think about it. If Jesus laid down his life for us, it is only reasonable that we would lay down our lives for him. If God rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he has, it is only logical and reasonable that we would then live in holiness. If we were the children of darkness before faith in Christ, it is only reasonable that we live as children of light now that we have believed in Christ. If we were dead in our sin, 
before Christ, it is only reasonable that we would live in newness of life now in Christ. And if we were enemies of God before, it is only reasonable that we are now friends of God now. And if our former lives, we subjected our bodies to the corruption of this world, it is only reasonable that our new lives, we present our lives as living sacrifices to God. It is only reasonable. It is only logical. It is only the reasonable service. Yes, it's a spirit-led service. Yes, it is an act that God is going to lead us into but it is also an act that is, shapes our thinking, our thought life. I love that phrase that Paul says there, which is your reasonable service of worship. Because it takes humble devotion in our own hearts and minds to think this way. It takes humble devotion in our minds to recognize we are bought with a price. We are now God's servants. We are now called by God out of this world into his glorious light. When we used to live for ourselves and live for our own glory, when we used to delight in the riches of this world and and delight in the pleasures of this world, and we lived in a self-exalting pride, it is spiritual service. It is logical worship. It is logical that we are coming under God in humility and devotion to him. We're bringing our thoughts in line with the scriptures and what God says is right and good. We think ourselves, again, properly. We are now God's children, God's servants. We are slaves, as Romans 6 says, we are now slaves of righteousness. As Romans 8 says, we are now yielding ourselves to the Spirit and by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. And we are, as Romans 8 says, living in anticipation of the promises of God that He completes what He starts. That nothing will come against us. Nothing will separate us from the the love of God, neither heights or depths or any other created thing. We're living in our minds when our minds are trying to be drawn away and our affections are trying to be drawn into the world. We are grabbing those thoughts and bringing them back into subjection to God. And we will look at that in a couple weeks when we look at verse 2 and see the life-transforming effect of renewing our mind. Right here, Paul says this is only reasonable that we would respond in this kind of worship. So we can mark it like this, that a gospel life, one who has embraced the gospel of God, has brought their heart and mind under the truth of the gospel and are influenced by it. It's not just a total surrender of themselves, it's a total surrender of their inner man to the things of God. That's why we think about truth. It's why we study truth. It's why we talk about truth. It's why we encourage one another with truth. That's why we hold one another accountable to truth. It's because the truth sanctifies. Truth transforms. Truth grabs our thoughts and crushes our proud thoughts and makes us humble. Two marks of the gospel of God. It's a logical, spiritual service to God. Marked by humble, 
total devotion to the living God, and it's marked by a humble thought life, which is our it's implied verb in the text, which is your spiritual service, your reasonable service of worship. <clears throat> Again, I love this because it just ends, puts a, an exclamation point on verse 36. For from him and through him and to him be all things, to him be the glory forever. How can you bring glory to God any other way? We bring glory to God in our entire submission to him, our total surrender of our lives to him, and we bring glory to God in our hearts and minds humbled by his truth and yielding in our hearts and minds to him. Those are the first two points. We'll pick up the others in a couple of weeks. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these great truths profoundly rich, profoundly helpful to us to see your purposes and plans laid out. For indeed, we have this high calling of the gospel of Christ that we have been called into by your grace and mercy, a privilege, position, to be a reflection of your glory and to be a reflection of what you're accomplishing. But indeed, we know in our own hearts, our own temptations to change your words and to twist your purposes and exalt our wills. And we rejoice in the, the work of your word and the work of your grace that you humble us and bring us low. We pray that we would be those humble servants who give ourselves over entirely to you. Our whole bodies, our whole lives, everything is yours. And in our minds, we are not warring against your truth. In our minds, we're in humble devotion to you because we see the consistent, reasonable conclusions that are drawn out. We see this not only because of the clarity of your word, but even naturally we can reason and understand that all that you have said is true, all that you've said is right, Therefore, we're even anticipating the protection that would come from judgment because of the grace given to us through Jesus Christ. The only natural response of our heart is to turn to you, to entrust ourselves to you and your will. So help us to remember these glorious truths and to live in the power of these things so we see your marvelous work on display. And prepare us for the lessons to come in Romans 12 through 16. Prepare us to be humble servants, to be teachable. And even when you expose those areas in our life that we, were, we had hidden or those areas that we were completely blind to and your light shines into those areas, may we come back to these principles. You are not demanding anything of, of us that has gone beyond what you've said total surrender, a humble devotion. And our heart desires to give ourselves over in humble devotion and total surrender to you so that you would receive all honor. So work amongst your people this morning. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.